Let's dive into the first chapter of Luke uh, today as we embark on our journey through the story of Jesus' ministry as told by the beloved physician. We're right at the beginning of this book, just after this short little prologue that was four verses, and today we're going to begin the actual narrative. Uh, we're covering verses 5 all the way through 56, which is a lot of text. It'll be all stuff that happens before Jesus is born in the story. Uh, and uh, just as a, a fair warning, there's a, a lot of deleted material, stuff that didn't make it into the sermon uh, because of the issue of length. And so uh, the deleted material is the same length as the actual sermon. So I'm just going to post that online on Facebook for those of you uh, who are overachievers, okay? Speaking of before Jesus is born, though, now is a good time to give a little bit of an historical backdrop for what we're about to read. If you notice in verse 5, let's go ahead and put that up just for a second. Verse 5, it starts off with the phrase, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Let's stop there for a second, right? In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and that'll put us in like the neighborhood of like 37 BC, give or take a few years. Um, that's, that's where we're going to just kind of land for the moment. Uh, the last time the Bible left off was at the end of the Old Testament, right? That was the, the, uh, the book of Malachi, which was written somewhere around 450 B.C. So during that time, from 450 B.C. to like around now, 37 B.C., something like that, right? Uh, around, uh, for that whole time, no prophet has been se uh, seen in Israel, no prophet has been prophesying in Israel during that time, meaning God has not directly spoken to his people for 400 years. And so they call it 400 years of silence. It has been 400 years where heaven has not spoken to us. And it's not just prophecy through prophets. God hasn't sent angels either. The last time an angel was, uh, was talked about was in about 520 BC in a lion's den with a guy named Daniel. And uh, the, it, it, the, just before that, just a little bit before that, there's this issue with the fiery furnace with Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're in a fiery furnace, and an angel is there too. And that is a, a moment of, of uh, miraculous work where God preserved the lives of these men in this fiery furnace. They didn't die. They didn't burn up. And that is the last known miracle. Technically, the, the only miracle workers in the Old Testament are Moses and then Elijah and his, his buddy Elisha. And they're centuries apart. So miracles aren't like a normal thing that happen all the time. They happen in very specific individuals. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and then Jesus and the apostles. That's it, right? So don't think that miracles are things that we're all supposed to be just throwing around. But miracles have been seen, been seen for over 500 years. Angels have not been seen for over 500 years. Prophecy has not been heard for 400 years. It is a screaming silence, a haunting absence. Where is the Lord? Where is God? What happened to all these promises of deliverance for Israel? What happened to all this talk of the eternal kingdom that would break all the other kingdoms? Where is the promised Messiah, the promised Savior? Well, today, starting here in Luke 1, the wait is over, and God will send an angel to give a prophecy about a miracle, about a baby boy that would be born, and he'll do it twice. First, he'll do it for a very old priest, and then he'll do it for this very young peasant girl. 
Let me show you the structure of what we're going to go through today. Uh, if you're taking notes, we're going to go in four movements. First, we're going to talk about the announcement to Zechariah. And then I'm going to tangent hard to talk about John the Baptist. Then we're going to come back and talk about the announcement to Mary. And then we're going to talk about John and Jesus in the womb. Okay, let's start with the announcement to Zechariah, which is verses 5 through 25. I'll start in verse 5. This is what it says. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, let's stop there for a second. Meet Zechariah. He's one of the 18,000 priests at the time. Priests, uh, they would would do kind of like what pastors do today. They mediate a bit between God and man. Uh, They conducted animal sacrifices and pronounced blessings. So those are things priests did that, well, pastors don't do that, but uh, they did counsel and they did teach scripture weekly in their towns. So that's something that they would do. Now, when they did the animal sacrifices and things, they would do that at the temple. Now, you should know there's only one temple. Okay, you know, like today, Jews say, I'm going to temple. That's not really a temple. Temple is where God dwelt in Jerusalem there's one temple. That's, that's the temple, okay? And each of the divisions of the priests would go at a certain time of the year to serve in the temple. There were 24 divisions of priests. Uh, that happened in 1 Chronicles 24. And uh, the 24 divisions of priests all had a different head of the, uh, of the division. Abijah was one of the divisions. That's one of the, the guys. And Zechariah the priest happens to be part of that division, That's how it worked. And what would happen is uh, a division of priests would go and serve in the temple for part of the year, right? And then uh, there would be this lottery of like, uh, you'd you'd go and you'd serve, but then someone can go inside the temple. When your division goes to, to serve, this happens for two weeks, one week of the year, and then you go back home and then come back later for a second week. Your division does that. But... Once in a lifetime, if you got lucky and won the lottery, you, when your division is serving for that week, could go inside the temple to serve by giving the uh, the incense offering. Now, Zechariah is serving with his division in the temple for for, one of the two different weeks of the year. And a whole multitude of people are praying outside. Remember that. Just kind of hold on to that, okay? Table that for a second. A whole multitude of people are praying outside. Now, Zechariah is a priest, which means he's a Levite. He's a son of Aaron is the way that they they refer to it. And his wife is also a a daughter of Aaron. So she's also from a priestly family. She's a a PK. She's a a priest kid, right? So they're both uh, priest, priest kid. You know, that's how it is. And uh, they're married, and I love the way that their, uh, their names kind of come into play here, because uh, Elizabeth, being a, a Levite, and then Aaron being Levite, if you, if you look at their names, uh, sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah means God remembers, 
which is, which is going to be, you know, relevant. Elizabeth means my God is faithful, and that's going to be relevant. Now, verse 6 says that both of them were righteous before God. They're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That doesn't mean that they never sin. It doesn't mean that. Believers are frequently called the righteous, the righteous ones in the Old Testament. It's always a, a name that, uh, to describe believers. That's like You'll see that in Psalm 1-6 or in Psalm 37-29, a bunch of times in the Proverbs, etc. Uh, Noah was blameless and righteous. That doesn't mean he was sinless. Um, Genesis 6, 9. Job was blameless and righteous, but he wasn't sinless. Job 1, 1, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth are, are, are like them. They're faithful believers. They're, they care about God. They, they uh, are repentant of their sins, but they're not sinless. Even, even, you know, when you go to church, you're supposed to have leaders who are blameless, leaders who are righteous. That doesn't mean they, they never sin. It just means that their hearts are right before the Lord. Like, even when they screw up, they, they come clean before God, right? Well, there's two righteous people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. How blessed, right? But if you think about it, probably nobody else thought that these two were blessed. Probably nobody else thought that these two were righteous. Why? Because, as it says in verse 7, they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. And it wasn't like she was just barren for a few years. She was barren for her whole life. She's advanced in years. That means that they're over 60 years old and that both of them are past, past the age of, child, uh, of, of having children. And so they're too old to have kids. So their destiny is now written. They're advanced in years. And they have no children. In ancient cultures, including Israel, the most severe shame a Jewish woman could bear was being childless. That kind of comes up in Deuteronomy 28, if you want to follow that up. Rabbis said that there were seven types of people that are excommunicated from God. Seven types of people that can't come near God. The first is a Jew who has no wife. And then the second is a Jew whose wife has no child. Now, that's a very terrible false teaching. And that, that's uh, something that would lend to this idea in this ancient culture that this married couple is not blessed. You get married as a teenager in that culture. You know, you get married uh, for girls, usually you get engaged around 12, and for guys around 14. So these, uh, these, two, these two people have been married for over 50 years. No child. People would look at childless Elizabeth and think God must hate her or God must hate Zechariah. One of them is excommunicated from God. They'd think that they're not blessed. And yet Luke wants us to know, as the reader, he wants us to know with absolute certainty that they're not cursed, but that they were righteous and blameless and followed all the commandments of God. So God is not mad at them. God doesn't hate them. They have no child, but that is not at all indicative of their standing before the Lord. He wants us to know that they weren't excommunicated from God, but they were righteous, they were blameless, and God was going to do something through them. God had a reason for things. God remembered. God is faithful. Every day at the temple... In the morning and in the evening, there was a sacrifice of the animal on, on the brazen altar. It's burnt 
uh, the altar of burnt offering. It's right outside the temple. So you have the temple. Outside its doors is a brazen altar or the altar for burnt offering. And every, every morning and evening, there would be an animal sacrifice there. That's the sacrifice of a spotless lamb every morning, every evening in Israel. Always a spotless lamb without blemish, without defect. That was the way to remember that we need to be clean before the Lord. A spotless lamb has to die in our place. At the time of the sacrifice, in the morning and the evening, there was also the offer of incense. And like I said, not every priest can do that. Only, uh, only one priest does it at a, at a time, and you only do that once in your lifetime. That's a maximum amount of times that you can do it. So that priest, what, uh, his, his job, it's a, a great honor if, if you were to get this thing. Your job as the priest was to basically just take some coals from the brazen altar outside and then you, you go inside the temple. This is right after the burnt offering, in the morning and in the evening. Right? You, you take some coals, you go inside the temple, and inside the temple, there's an altar for incense. So you put the coals on the altar, and then you put incense there, and you burn the incense. And that, that incense would, uh, would, would give off a smoke. It'd be aromatic. And that smoke would go up from this golden bowl where everything's placed, and it would, uh, it would be a, a visual symbol of the prayers of Israel rising up to heaven. Zechariah was chosen seemingly randomly, seemingly by lot, but truly by the sovereign hand of God. Zechariah was chosen, selected by divine providence to give the, the incense. I'll show you a picture. He'd walk into the temple like that. And, uh, and, and if you notice, there's a, the priest in the, in the picture is standing before this tiny little altar where he's going to burn incense. Then there are steps up, and then on that stage, there's, there's going to be this big curtain. Okay? Now, if you understand the language of the temple, the temple has uh, you know, outer courts and inner courts and stuff, and then when he, where he went inside is called the holy place. Where, where Zechariah would be standing is the holy place, right at the altar of incense, okay? That, then there would be those steps and then a curtain, and behind that curtain is where God would dwell with the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's the big box with, the, with the, uh, the, you know, seraphim on either side. But he would he'd be right there. God would be there in the most holy place or the holy of holies. So this is the closest that any priest would get to the presence of God. The only exception to that would be the high priest who's supposed to once a year go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and give a, a blood atonement offering, okay? But for anyone who's not the high priest, once in your lifetime, at best, you can come into the holy place to burn incense, which would be a fragrant column of smoke rising up to, to uh, symbolize the prayers of Israel, their confession, their thanksgiving, their repentance, salvation, peace. Blessing, family, Israel, Messiah, all those things that they would pray about. That's what the priest would go in there and, and offer up. He would, he would burn that incense and it would rise up and they'd say, the Lord receives our prayers. The Lord hears our prayers. This was the biggest deal in the lifetime of any priest. It would be the ambition, the goal, the dream of every priest to have that opportunity to stand that close to the direct presence of God. 
and to represent the corporate prayers of the covenant people of Israel. All the Jews would gather outside and pray for all those things while this was happening. And that's what they're doing, if you remember. They're outside and they are praying. That incense would then burn and you see the the visual symbol of, of the people's dependence on God, their submission to God, their trust in God as they prayed. Then the priest who comes in there with the coals and the incense, he would turn around, he'd leave. And that was the whole thing. That's all he had to do. Bring in the coals, put them down, spread them around a little bit on the altar, put on the incense and pray. Then he's supposed to go back out and just pray a benediction over the the congregation. He's supposed to pray a blessing over the the congregation. And it was always the same blessing. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. But he he prays a blessing. That would happen every morning, every evening. And it was a powerfully worshipful moment. And God is about to interrupt it. The most important moment of Zechariah's life His dream come true, and it's going to go wrong because God's going to interrupt it. Verse 11, there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just or the righteous to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now realize the ridiculousness of this situation. An angel visits Zechariah with a message from God, with a prophecy saying that Zechariah's wife will have a miracle birth and they'll have a baby boy. 500 years of no angels, 500 years of no miracles, 400 years of no prophecy, 400 years of silence. And now the silence is broken. God has spoken. No one else is inside the temple except Zechariah performing the most important act of worship in his life. No one else will be able to confirm whether or not this even happened. No one can say, I saw it, I was there. If he were to tell someone, would he not seem crazy? An angel appeared, 
It wasn't symbolic. It wasn't imagined. It wasn't some vision that he was just having. An angel appeared specifically to the right side of the altar. He was right there, physically manifest. It should be amazing for an angel to appear in the temple with you. If an angel showed up, you should say, awesome, this is incredible. And yet, for some reason, Zechariah was troubled. He was afraid. Fear gripped him. Why? Well, that kind of happens every time an angel appears in the Bible. The, the angels uh, that appear in the Bible, they're, they're never, you know, they're, they're never blonde Caucasian women with white robes. That's never it. And they're not accompanied by a boy's choir and a spotlight. Whenever an angel appears, there's always terror. And more so, I think, for Zechariah, and you'd kind of just have to process this for just a moment. Zechariah is in front of the most holy place, in front of the presence of God. He's going to walk up to God. The high priest goes in there only once a year. This priest is walking up. He's like, this is the closest I'll ever get, right? This is the closest I'll ever get. When the high priest goes in there once a year, you know how they, they like prepare for that? They're like, okay, high priest, you're going to go in. You're going to be in the presence of God. So let's put a rope around you that, that we'll hold on to from outside, and we'll have bells hanging off you so that when you go in there, we keep hearing you move around, ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling. And then if you're unworthy before the Lord, God will just kill you. You will drop dead. He, you, can't, you can't come before the Lord with sin resident in your heart. And so if you do that, if you go unworthy before the Lord, you drop dead instantly. And if that's the case, we hear thump. And there's no more bell ringing. There's no more ding-a-ling. And so they go, well, what's, what's going on? They tug on the rope. They don't get a tug back. Ping, no pong. So then they just tug the rope and they got to pull the body out. Be like, well, better luck next year. Zechariah is in this moment standing before the presence of God knowing unworthiness falling short of the presence of God falling short of the glory of God deserves death the wages of sin is death he must be terrified to walk in there with the coals wondering did I pray enough did I confess it? Did I repent truly? Do you ever, you ever do that? Did I truly repent? Am I really clean before the Lord? Did I say everything I needed to say and just make sure my heart is okay with him and stuff? He's walking in there. He's doing that. He's like, I think it's okay. It's okay. Here's the incense. We're good. We're good. And this angel appears and he's just like, oh no, I'm going to die. Like this is how it happens. And there's no rope around my body. So I'm just going to decompose in here. He sees an angel appear. He's troubled. He's freaking out. Because for a second, he was thrilled to do the incense thing, but now it's terror. He stands before the glory of God because that's, the angels kind of like exude that. The angels are glorious. Whenever they appear, people are terrified. You see that in Judges 6, 13, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 8, and Daniel 10, Luke 1, verse 29, Luke 2, Revelation 1, Revelation 19. You see it everywhere. Whenever angels appear, people are terrified. So here's Zechariah being terrified, just like everybody else. And the angel tells Zechariah not to be afraid. That's the, the memorized greeting of every angel. You know, like if you're going to go to another country, you learn how to greet. If you're going to go to Mexico, you learn how to say hola. You know, you're going to go to France, you learn how to say bonjour. Angels are like, I'm going to go to earth. And they're like, okay, learn how to say this. Do not be afraid. That's how you say hi in human. Do not be afraid. 
So the angel says, do not be afraid. And when he explains it to Zechariah, he says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will have a son. You're going to call him John. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. John, whom we will later, we'll just be calling for clarity, John the Baptist. Some people who are not Baptists like to say John the Baptizer. It's fine. Either or. But I love how all three names are showcased there in verse 13. All three names are there. Zechariah and Elizabeth are over 60 years old now. And God is answering their prayers, the prayers that they prayed so many years ago when they were teenagers and for decades as they grew as they prayed, God, give us a child. God, remove our curse. God, take away this disgrace and this dishonor. Are you mad at us? Do you hate us? Did we do something wrong? Can I stand before you and offer anything? And the angel says, God remembers. God is faithful. You'll have a son, you'll call him John which means God is gracious. Verses 15 to 17 will then very cryptically prophesy about the boy, and much of that will kind of be fulfilled and explained in chapter 3 and a moment in chapter 7, stuff like that. And so I will explain uh, a little bit after verse 25. I'm going to do that little tangent about John the Baptist, and then I'm going to get back to him in chapter 3, and maybe a little bit more in chapter 7. But that, that description there in verses 15 to 17, I'm not just skipping it. I will, I will come back to that. Even though Zach, uh, Zechariah is a righteous man, he, he can't believe what he's been told, though, right? He's standing here, and an angel has just told this, like, 70, 80-year-old guy, this super old guy, right? Who knows how old he is? But he's old enough where he just won't believe an angel, an angel appears to him and, and said, you're going to have a son. And verse 18, here's Zechariah's response. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Meaning, how can I be sure? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So how am I supposed to know this? My wife is beyond the age of childbearing. Maybe he just can't believe uh, that it's an angel. Maybe that's the part he's having trouble with. Or maybe he's having trouble with the fact that God is now speaking. There's actually a prophecy after 400 years. Or maybe he's having trouble believing that there's going to be a miracle. It's not that easy to believe that this, this uh, advanced in years couple is going to have a baby. But this wouldn't be the first time that a miracle baby was born to God's people. And Zechariah would know this. He's a priest. He teaches the scriptures. He would know this. Isaac was born to his 90-year-old mom, who was barren, in Genesis 18. So that would have particular relevance to Zechariah's situation. Samuel was born to his mom, who was barren, in 1 Samuel 1. Samson was born to his barren mother in Judges 13. There's a, a boy in 2 Kings 4 who was born to a Shunammite woman whose father was, was too old to have children. And then, spoiler alert... Jesus himself will be born miraculously to a virgin girl named Mary. So there are miracle births 
in many places in the Bible. And even though Zechariah didn't believe the angel, God doesn't take back his word. God doesn't go, oh, you didn't believe me? Well, then forget you. I'll find someone else. He doesn't say that. He goes, no, that's fine. Okay, you you don't believe me. I'm still going to do it, but you're going to have to have some consequences for not believing what I said. And God is is, uh, playing nice here. Verse 19, the angel answered Zechariah. He said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news, this euangelion, this gospel. Verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So uh, in response to Zechariah's doubt, the angel introduced himself as Gabriel. He's one of two angels mentioned in the Bible by name. That's Gabriel and Michael. Zechariah knows who Gabriel is. He knows. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel shows up and announces the coming Messiah and announces the inevitable victory of the Messiah and the unstoppability of the coming kingdom that will last forever and ever. It's one of the most powerful moments in the Old Testament. Zechariah would know exactly who Gabriel is. And Gabriel says, I, you know, I came here to give you the good news. I came here to tell you about the coming Savior. So when Zechariah hears the name of this angel, he knows he screwed up. He knows he biffed hard. And the angel says, and just for that, you can't talk until the baby's born. That's nine to ten months. God will still fulfill his promise because the sovereign plan doesn't hinge on us. Although it does show us that we can forfeit blessing when we disobey. Anyway, people are outside, if you remember. People are outside waiting for Zechariah to come out and pray a benediction, right, from number 624. Uh, And he's taking a long time. Is he dead? What happened? How long does it take to go in there, put down coals, burn incense, say a prayer, and then walk back out? It should not take that long. But then they're like, hey, what's going on? This guy's having, like, lunch in the temple or something, you know? He's, uh, He's not... He's not coming back out, and so they're starting to get concerned. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Do you remember what they were doing before when they were outside the temple? Praying. They're done praying. They've been praying for, I don't know, but Israel, oftentimes, they pray for hours. So how long was he in there staring at this angel? They're wondering at his delay at the temple, verse 22, and when Zechariah came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Right? He came out, and he's, he's just making signs. He's gesticulating, you know? He's just trying to say something. You'd think, why didn't he write stuff down? Most people weren't literate back then. Don't take your education for granted. Right? A lot of people couldn't read, so he could write stuff down and be like, what's he doing? He's drawing. So he comes out, he can't, he can't say anything, so he's just trying to, I don't know, what's your, what's your motion for angel? Right? They, they don't look like what you think they look like. He's trying to describe what he saw and has eyes all around, six wings, you know, covering their eyes and just lion and bird and, you know, like the different faces and stuff like, good luck. You draw that. 
He didn't even get to do his benediction. Poor guy. I mean, biggest moment of his life, right? He's supposed to come out and be like, the Lord bless you and keep you. That whole thing, right? He's supposed to do that. He didn't even get to do it. That's like, that's the moment, right? Nobody sees what he does in the temple. He could go in there and take a nap for all they know. He could come back out and then he's the big thing, the big benediction. He didn't even get to do it. I feel so bad for him. He comes out and he's just like, and they don't even know what he's trying to say. And they're like, okay, he saw something. He saw, what's in that incense? He saw something. And he can't say, so he just finishes his week of priestly service with the rest of his division of priests at the temple. And then he goes home. He'll go home to his wife, Elizabeth, and she'll see that he's obviously experienced something and he's not talking about it. Then verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, I like that Luke is so careful to tell us that Elizabeth got pregnant after Zechariah came home. He is the father. It wasn't a pregnancy from another man. Uh, there's no fanfare about this. An old woman got miraculously pregnant, and for some reason it's just communicated like, well, yeah, of course that happened. She, okay, so she got pregnant. There's not this big, you know, wow moment. It's just, yes, it happened just like the angel said. And even weirder is that she keeps herself hidden for five months, not telling anyone. But she's clearly worshipful. She's like, the Lord has done this for me. He's taken away my reproach among people. She doesn't say my reproach to heaven. You know, she's like, God doesn't hate us. People think we're cursed. And so God's taken away my reproach among people. But she hasn't revealed it to people yet. What's going on? Well, for the first five months, you don't look pregnant. Uh, you, you know, in the beginning, you just... You just uh, Maybe you have morning sickness or something like that. But, you know, it's like when you find out you're pregnant, when you take a pregnancy test, it's not after that. You just, whoa, look at that. Look at my belly. You know, that takes some time. So she waits till it's like undeniably visible that she's pregnant. Up until then, she doesn't walk around saying like, hey, everyone, I'm pregnant. Seven-year-old woman. And everyone's like, okay, now she's, now she's senile right? She's walking around. She's not going to do that. She's not going to be like, trust me, an angel talked to my husband. That's not happening. She just stays by herself, keeping it quiet. Maybe she's doubting it, uh, you know, in her own mind. Maybe she's like, is this even real? How would I know? I'm past menopause. How would I know? You know, am I actually pregnant? And then, you know, I'm, I am like feeling sick in the morning, whatever, but time is going by and then it starts to show and it's it's undeniably obvious. And in, instead of uh, going around right at the beginning and telling everyone she's pregnant and getting laughed at and disgraced even more, she waited until it was obvious and undeniable. And then she walks around and says, guess what, y'all? You were wrong. The Lord is faithful. And so her faith is evident in how she acknowledges God's miracle, responds worshipfully, and even humbly. She doesn't go around just throwing it in people's faces like that, you know? She waits. And then lets the Lord get the glory. And so she is pregnant with her son, John. 
Let's talk about John for a second. I'm going to tangent into this guy, okay? The, uh, I told you verses 15 to 17 give you a cryptic description. I want to just talk about that for a little bit, and I'll get more to it in chapter 3. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And in Malachi, it's said that before the Messiah comes, there would be a forerunner or a herald. Malachi 3, verse 1. Uh, God says, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. So a messenger or a forerunner or a herald will prepare the way before Messiah comes. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. L-O-R-D, capital letters. Uh, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Now, if you, uh, if you look at that, it's, it kind of sets you up. The Jews expected the prophet Elijah to return from the dead. They expected Elijah to come back. Uh, he, he spoke uh, for God back in his day when he was alive. He spoke for God. He confronted false religion. He overthrew evil. He would be the herald to the Messiah, a forerunner, a herald, a messenger, announces the coming of a king. That's what they do. That's what a herald does. And so you announce the coming of a king and you prepare a road. You literally would start construction if there was no road there. And you would prepare people to receive him. You'd tell them to get ready, announce it all. They all bring gifts and things and they get dressed up. He makes sure people are ready for the king. That was the purpose to John, John the Baptist. He would be a forerunner, a herald. He confronted the corruption of the Jewish and Roman leaders. He called people to repentance. That's what he would do, and that's what he will do. That's what we'll watch him do as we go through the Gospels. He would turn the hearts of Israel to the Lord because Israel had gone astray, so he calls them to repentance. He would turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just or the righteous. That's calling them to repentance. He would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and vice versa, meaning he would unite generations of Jews under the banner of the Messiah. And he was waiting for the Messiah to arrive so that all the people that would follow him, he would point to Jesus, uh, to the Messiah and say, follow that guy. That's the guy you want. He was waiting, you know, after after centuries of of a a spotless lamb without blemish being slain every morning, every evening, every morning, every evening. He wanted to just go, hey, everybody, everyone who's hearing my message, behold, that's the Lamb of God. Everything you've done before that is a symbol, but that's the Lamb. Which is precisely what he says in John chapter 1. Oddly, John shared the same fashion as Elijah the prophet. And he also lived in the wilderness like Elijah the prophet, and he ate desert food like Elijah the prophet. Look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 3. It says uh, that Elijah wore a, a garment of hair, this camel hair, you know, with a belt of leather about his waist. It is Elijah the Tishbite. So John the Baptist like, resembles Elijah, but we, we have to then just directly answer the question, is John Elijah? Is he the one that Malachi spoke of? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 21, someone asks him that. Look, it says, uh, the people asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Are you the prophet? It's spoken of in Deuteronomy. Are you the prophet? Which could mean Elijah or it could mean the Messiah. In either case, he says, nope, I'm not that either. 
So according to John the Baptist himself, he is not Elijah. Literally speaking, he is not a resurrected prophet from history living today. I am not actually Elijah. But then here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus says, for all the prophets in the law, meaning all the scripture prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. That's weird. See, according to Jesus, John the Baptist is the Elijah that scripture prophesied about, that the prophets in the law talked about, if you are willing to accept it, as he says. That means if you accept what the scriptures say, then John fulfills the Elijah prophecy. He is not literally Elijah, but he is what was talked about in the scriptures, what the scriptures were talking about, saying someone like Elijah will come. Someone with the same spirit and the same power of Elijah will come. So he says, yes, he does fulfill that prophecy, but no, he is not actually that guy from history. He would be someone who resembles Elijah in spirit and power. John the Baptist was that guy. I'll show you again Luke 1, verse 17. It says, uh, he'll, go bef- he'll go before him. John the Baptist will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just or righteous and to make ready the, uh, for the Lord a people prepared. So is John actually Elijah? No, literally no. But does he fulfill the prophecy that someone like Elijah would come? Yes, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He, he does what Elijah did. Okay. And then, he, of course, he also was set apart. He was isolated. He wore camel hair. He ate locusts. He prophesied. He confronted sin. He prepared people for the Messiah, just like Elijah. Okay, so he's thematically the same. What if you're not willing to accept that uh, the scriptures are prophesying? You know, it says, if you're willing to accept it, then John fulfills the prophecy of Elijah. What if you're not willing to accept it? Well, then, another Elijah-like prophet will come before the great and awesome day of Yahweh, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Uh, And that might be what Revelation 11 is talking about. You can go to our Revelation series if you want to hear about that. Remember, Jesus comes to the earth twice. First, uh, for the cross. Second, to judge the world. Preceding both arrivals, there will be an Elijah-like person. Okay? All right tangent over. You can all start paying attention again. And so the silence is broken. An angel prophesied to Zechariah that a miracle from God would grant him a son. That son would grow up to be John the Baptist. He will be great. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He'll be like Elijah. He'll turn the hearts of people to the Messiah. That's That's everything about John and Zechariah. Now let's go to the announcement to Mary, verses 26 to 38. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of, of Galilee, more like a town, to a town of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, of course. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Yeshua, or Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his king, of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, think about this. It says right there in verse 26, this is in the sixth month. Sixth month of what? Sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's the flow of the context, right? In the sixth month of Elizabeth being pregnant, the angel Gabriel now promises a miraculous birth to a virgin named Mary. Mary, uh, if you remember, you know, she's, uh, she's, she's betrothed to someone here. She's engaged to someone. And so she's between ages 12 to 14. So let's, let's land her at like 12 or 13 years old, okay? Uh, she's betrothed. Joseph, her, her husband-to-be, is around the vicinity of 14, these are two ordinary engaged Jewish people. They live in Nazareth, which is a tiny little town, uh, maybe 2,000 population. Your high school would probably have more of a population than, than their town. Why would Mary be troubled at the statement in verse 29, right? The, uh, angel, the angel appears and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one. I mean, if God showed up and said that to you, that would, that would hopefully breed a certain amount of confidence. Why would Mary be troubled? Well, I think it has to do with something the, with the fact that she's 12 and she's alone in her house and a stranger just walked in and he's not a human being and he's talking to her. Right? Just try to relate to that experience for a second there. Right? You wouldn't be like, awesome. You'd be like, what is this? She's greatly troubled at this greeting. She's afraid, and, um, and of course, later on in verse 30, you'll find out that the angel, of course, had to greet her by saying, do not be afraid, but for some reason, it's not included in this little moment. But Mary was afraid because even if she understood this as an angel, and she understood God is speaking to me, she knew she was a sinner. If any of us knew that God was just going to show up right now to talk to you, would you be like, I'm ready? Probably not. You'd be like, hang on, where's the offering basket? Or something, you know? You'd, you'd just be like, let me, let me do something. Let me, let me pray for a sec. Let me, let's sing another song. You know, you try to get ready, but she was not ready. This angel appeared, and she's just like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? She's, she's freaking out. The situation, by the way, seems a lot like when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah, right? The, uh, the angel announces to Zechariah, then the angel announces to Mary, the same angel. It's Gabriel, right? He's talking to both of them. But those situations differ in a lot of ways. Mary is a, a teenage virgin girl who's engaged but not married. Zechariah was a super old guy who's been married for decades. So they don't look alike. Mary is a peasant in Galilee, which is country, and she's doing nothing worth mentioning in this, this passage. While Zechariah is a priest in Jerusalem, capital city where the presence of God dwells, and he's in the middle of the most important act of worship ever for him. Mary's a child, uh, sorry, Mary's child will not have a biological father, whereas Zechariah will be the biological father of the miracle baby. Mary's response will be one of faith in verse 34. Zechariah's response was one of doubt, if you remember. Even their sons will be different. Zechariah's son, which is John the Baptist, John the Baptist is great in God's sight, great before the Lord. But Mary's son, Jesus, is just called great, no qualifier, period. That's it. He will be great. 
because he is divine. John the Baptist would be son of a priest. Jesus would be son of the Most High. He'd be son of God Most High, El Elyon. John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist would be forerunner to the king. Jesus is that king. Jesus will be given that throne, the throne of David. That's the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. His kingdom will never end. That's Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel chapter 4, verse 3. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is what all the prophets and the law are really talking about. Mary is going to give birth to the Savior, and you're going to name him Yeshua. You're going to name him Jesus. You're going to name him Yahweh saves. And this is the baby that shows it. He is the Savior. As a side note, Jesus never got a throne, if you haven't noticed, right? He, he never got a throne. The closest thing to royalty that he got was a crown made of thorns. So what's this about a throne? Well, he doesn't have it yet. He does rule over his people. He is king, and his people, are, uh, they, they worship him, and they submit to him, and he rules over them spiritually as lord and king. But when he returns to the earth to judge the earth and reclaim the earth, he destroys his enemies. That's when he sets up an actual physical, political kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and then all sin will be uh, sin and evil will be eternally destroyed after that thousand years, and his kingdom will be transplanted on a brand new earth forever and ever. So that kingdom will last forever and ever. Right now, the kingdom has started in the hearts of his people, and then it will be consummated at his return. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And, you know, she's asking how, but it's not doubt, okay? She's not asking out of doubt. She's baffled at the process since she's a virgin. It's a reasonable question. And Gabriel's answer is that the Holy Spirit will conceive a child in her. And it'll be a miraculous event, just as it was for Elizabeth miraculous. It'll be miraculous here, too. This is divine power. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest any kind of sexual activity. She's still a virgin until Jesus is born and then she and her husband, uh, Joseph, will continue to have more children after that, naturally. Verse 35, and the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Gabriel told Mary that her child will be holy, which means he's divine and he'll never sin which is what we're told in Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 7.26, and 2 Corinthians 5.21. doesn't sin. He's, Jesus is already holy. You know, he, he's, he's God with us. And he's in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, and soon people will trust in him, and they'll realize it, and they'll call him holy. 
Now, that's awesome to hear from an angel, but when, when, her, when her fiancé, Joseph, finds out Mary's pregnant, it's hard to believe that story, right? Honey, I'm pregnant. What? It's uh, from the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't be like, oh, okay. That's never happened before. So an, an angel has to go to him, too, and be like, hey, she's telling the truth. And he goes, okay. Like, that has to happen. And that happens in Matthew chapter 1. So he doesn't divorce her, and he doesn't have her killed, which was legal for marital infidelity. As for Mary, she submits to God. She calls herself God's bond slave, Dule, her, his servant. She's in debt to God because she is undeserving, and she knows it. So then, this final meeting takes place, right? She found out Elizabeth is pregnant, six months pregnant, so she's like, I got to go check this out. So then we get John and Jesus in the womb, and they're going to meet in the womb. So it's not, it's like a virtual meeting. That's verses 39 to 56. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, notice she, she's uh, pregnant now with Jesus in the womb, right? How pregnant is she? Like, is she like five months pregnant? No. She's like a couple days. So does she show? No. She goes in haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, verse 40, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, ignored Zechariah. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, why was this meeting important? Why did these two have to meet? Why did Mary have to meet Elizabeth? And why did Jesus and John have to, in, in the meeting, or in the womb, meet each other? Why did that have to happen? Again, maybe it's because Mary's a 12-year-old girl. She's scared or uncertain. She's never been pregnant before. She's still a virgin, so she's never even been married before. Is she crazy? She's got to be wondering that. Like, am I crazy? Is, is any of this real? She doesn't look pregnant, so did I just imagine all this? She could use some guidance, and no one in town will believe her. Even her husband won't believe her if an angel doesn't come and tell him, like, hey, she's telling the truth. So no one is going to believe her. She can't go around town saying, guess what happened, you guys? If she tells people what happened, they'll kill her. The Holy Spirit put a baby in her, and she's still a virgin. Who else has a miracle baby? I can't talk about this with anyone. And then the angel's like, actually, someone else is having a miracle baby. You wouldn't believe what I have in store for you. There's this, your relative, Elizabeth. You guys are related through your mom. And so she's, you know, Mary's alone. And so she has to go visit this 70-year-old this woman or however old she is. She has to go visit her relative Elizabeth just to see, like, is this true? Is this really going on? Am I nuts? She heard Elizabeth is miraculously pregnant too. So she goes to see it and just seeing her, just seeing her. Right? This, this old woman looks like a raisin, and she's pregnant. It would bolster such hope and such joy and excitement. This is not a secret anymore. Mary could talk to her, and, and, and Elizabeth could talk to Mary. Both of them would be so mutually encouraged and overjoyed. 
They could talk together. They could pray about it. They could rejoice. They could sing songs. And Justin showing up, Justin showing up, all her concerns are obliterated, melt away. Because right when she walks in and says, hi, Elizabeth, Elizabeth immediately explodes into praise and affirmation from feeling what's going on with her baby inside. We can assume they caught up. Elizabeth had to explain everything, like, here's what happened to my husband. Both of them must be so thrilled. The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. This is John the Baptist's first announcement of the Messiah, and it's in utero. It's a prenatal prophecy. This is not completely without precedent. In Genesis 25, this woman, Rebecca, has two twin boys in her womb, Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 25, verses 22 to 23, the twin boys are struggling with one another, and then God goes, that's a prophecy of how there will be two nations that will struggle with each other, come for their loins. So if God wants to use prenatal prophecy, he's done it before, and he does it here with John the Baptist. Did the baby John the Baptist know what he was doing? No, of course not. He's a baby. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. Remember from verse 15? Even in his mother's womb, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he acts by the impulse of the Holy Spirit. That's why when she reflects on how the Savior, that, that Mary will reflect on the Savior, whom she needs and whom we need, she'll reflect on, on the baby in her womb, and so she too bursts out with this anthem of praise. It says in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of his hearts, in the, the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Verse 56, and Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned home. This here, what Mary just speaks forth is called Mary's Magnificat, which is from the Latin, her, uh, which means exalts. Mary exalts the Lord. She exalts God in a song of worship, which should inform our own songs, right? Her song is internal, and it's intense. My soul magnifies the Lord. We don't sing worship songs to get you in the mood for the sermon. We sing worship songs because something in our souls needs to praise God. The songs are for Him, not for us. Her Magnificat is reflective and it's humble. 
She doesn't just sing, I love you, I love you, I love you, a whole bunch to get herself into some emotional frenzy. She speaks the word, declaring what God has done, recognizing his might and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his grace. She states in her Magnificat why her soul magnifies him. Mary worships for what God is doing for her personally. And she worships for what God is doing for others communally. Mary got there when Elizabeth was six months pregnant. She stayed there for three months. And she left when Elizabeth was nine months pregnant, just before Elizabeth would give birth. And that's where we have to pick it up next time. 500 years, no one had seen a miracle. 500 years, no one had seen an angel. 400 years, no one prophesied a prophecy. 400 years of haunting silence from heaven. And finally, the silence is broken. The waiting is over. God has spoken. God remembers. God is faithful. God is gracious. God is with us. God is Yahweh. Yahweh saves. Yeshua, Jesus is the Savior. If you believe it, say amen. Let's close our eyes. As we close in prayer, I will give to you the blessing that Zechariah was unable to give from Numbers 6, verse 24. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the gift of Jesus, who is the Savior. He is God with us. He's the glory of heaven manifest. Our souls magnify the Lord, and we rejoice in God our Savior. Keep us vigilant, Lord, that we would look into your word and find greater, deeper, brighter blessing as we journey with Luke and find again and again that Jesus is Savior, not just Savior to Israel, not just Savior to the rich, 
or the successful, but Savior to all. We place our faith and trust in Him. We pray all this for His glory and His name. Amen.